DiscerningHearts.com, in cooperation with the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, presents The Resilient Church, The Glory, The Shame, and The Hope for Tomorrow, with Mike Aquilina. Mike Aquilina is the author or editor of more than 40 books on Catholic history, doctrine, and devotion. Among his many books are The Mass of the Early Christians, The Fathers of the Church, The Mass, The Glory, The Mystery, and The Tradition, co-authored with Cardinal Donald Worrell, and The Resilient Church, The Glory, The Shame, and The Hope for Tomorrow, the book on which this series is based. He has co-hosted with Dr. Scott Hahn, eight series that air on the Eternal Word television network. He has co-led pilgrimages to the Holy Land, Italy, Greece, and Turkey. He's a widely sought-after Catholic speaker. The Resilient Church, The Glory, The Shame, and The Hope for Tomorrow with Mike Aquilina. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome back, Mike. I'm glad to be back, Chris. We're getting into an exciting time, and we're getting pretty close to home here. It's not the it's not the far distant history anymore. No, so many of us have been taught in schools the importance of that period of time, 1776, the great American Revolution in North America, and it would literally have an effect throughout the world. It, it did, and we have such warm feelings toward our own revolution that it's hard for us to imagine how these things took place in other lands where the scars run a lot deeper and uh, and the, the, the memories aren't always so warm. You know, here uh, it was a long war that was fought between the colonies and the mother country, but in the end it was settled kind of peacefully and uh, definitively and there was such distance, really, between the two different sides in the war. There was an ocean between us that life was able to continue with some, some modicum of order. But as the revolutionary movement spread through Europe, it was not that way. And that's why what we find in the histories of a lot of these lands is really more than a, a century of turmoil and sometimes barbarity. I think it's because in, in North America anyway, especially in America and our revolution, we never lost sight of God-given rights and the role that faith would play on what it was to have liberty. And even in the fashioning of our laws, God and his commandments, and especially treating our neighbors as we would want ourselves to be treated, there was an attempt to manifest that in our government. But what's happening in Europe, and in particular in France, with a revolution that claimed liberty, equality, and fraternity, something was missing, and that element was God. Yes. Well, at the time, there were many ideas fashionable in France. There was a kind of cynicism about religion. If we look at the aftermath of the Protestant Reformation, if you say that, well, the religion in a country is really up to the prince of the country. And so everybody should have to live peacefully, you know, according to the religion of the prince. Well, then you're denying that there is any truth knowable. You're really denying the truth of any religion. You know, you're saying one is as good as another, and it really just depends on, on who's in charge. Mm-hmm. Well, as a result of that, there arose a certain cynicism regarding religion, and that cynicism led to deep skepticism, and gradually to, to atheism and, uh, and a hostility toward religion. And we find that from the beginning, really, in the French Revolution. The French looked at what was going on in, in America, and they said, hey, you know, if, if other people can throw off the yoke of tyrants, well, we can too. We're looking at a time when French was really seen as the zenith of cultural 
accomplishment and uh, influence in Europe. I mean, it it was really esteemed by by the other the other peoples in Europe and uh, and looked at, at as a cultural center. And Louis the Fourteenth deserves a lot of credit for that, but he really did bankrupt the country in order to achieve it. You know, he spent a lot of money to build up the country in such a way, and his successors uh, really had to live with that bankruptcy, which reached a, reached a crisis in the later part of the century. They really did have a tremendous influence even on America, because when you think even in this, this time, Benjamin Franklin became one of our great founding fathers, became quite the celebrity in France. He did. He was a Francophile himself, and they brought French ideas to the United States, but always, always moderated. When the revolution hit France, it hit with a vengeance because the people were so poor. They felt so oppressed. And at the time, there was a lot of repression going on because there were movements toward reform and the king was always putting the brakes on them. It also became clear that the king was really conspiring with other powers in Europe about ways to keep his own people in check. So bringing in the Prussians, for example, um, to discipline the French people, and this did not go over too well. So for a while, they tried to make it a constitutional monarchy, but eventually it all fell apart, and the king himself and his family were executed. At the same time, uh, there was a great hostility toward toward the church, which was seen as, as uh, just another uh, ornament of the nobility, uh, because so many of the leaders in the church came from the nobility. They were the educated class. And so there was a revolt against the church, and in that those those first years of the revolution, and there was one revolutionary m- movement after another, and one of them would displace another, there came what we now call the Reign of Terror, and so many priests uh, were killed at that time, faithful Catholics were killed. There was actually a concentration camp uh, made for priests on Ile Madame, and, and, and uh, hundreds of priests died there. So we're looking at a time of martyrdom that's comparable to the time of Diocletian. It was that severe, that ruthless, that bloody, and it happened in France. A terrible period, and not only priests, but uh, women religious. Convents yes. were sacked, uh, nuns were raped and then killed. I mean, it was just, yes. I mean, when you think about terror, it was unceasing. It was more than just wiping out the church. They wanted to replace it, and they kept casting about for a secular religion that could replace it. You know, they took over Notre Dame Cathedral, and they tried to use it as as a temple of reason, and they enthroned some dancer, a popular dancer in France, as the goddess reason mm-hmm. at the, in the temple, and they would have um, they would have just just awful rites desecrating the place. And then they they had different movements that were really abstract and were based on kind of uh, high-flown ideas about philanthropy. Well, you know, they just don't fly with people. They're not going to give their lives for, for that sort of idea. And at the heart of it all was always utter loyalty to the state. That's what they were looking for, some way of using a religion to keep the people in check. But the people were not buying any of these fake, trumped-up religions. So, uh, again, the, the persecution of the church continued, and it was a nasty thing. Yeah, so much so that even trying to find the American model and developing a republic and everyone being called citizen, the fact is that they cast it around so much and wanted a leader, they eventually got an emperor. Once again, they're under a monarchy, essentially. And, and Napoleon created conditions of freedom. 
at least for for the church a certain limited freedom because he still wanted to control the church administratively he said that the pope had doctrinal authority but the state should control the bishops well the pope was not keen on these ideas but the, the you know the pope tried to work with napoleon as much as he could but eventually they came to the parting of ways and, and the Pope excommunicated Napoleon, which haunted Napoleon, oddly enough. Even though he, he did not present himself as a friend of the church, he was haunted by that excommunication. He ended up even kidnapping the Pope, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, and the Pope remained more or less in, in captivity until the, the fall of, of Napoleon's empire. And Napoleon seemed unbeatable. You know, he, he got all the way to Egypt and Syria, and it, it took almost all the forces of the world opposed against him to stop him. He was a remarkable and powerful leader, but but he, again, he fell within his own lifetime, and he, he saw himself humiliated, and the church prevailed once again. The interesting thing is that France, which, which underwent such a great persecution of the faith, you know, at the same time, really, became a cradle of Catholicism. Mm -hmm. Because while all of this was going on, the bloody revolution, and then, and then the empire of Napoleon, and all of these things opposing God in so many ways, what we find is, for example, a small boy being born, <laughs> and his name is John, John Vianney. And he has to get his formation uh, for First Communion behind closed doors in secret, because the, the, the faith is outlawed at the time and persecuted. And, and John Vianney had to be catechized in this way. He had to have his first communion in secret. And he had to become a deserter from Napoleon's army in order to pursue his vocation to the priesthood. So he lived in all these times of turmoil. And again, we're looking at someone who was in, in many ways like Juan Diego, who we saw in an earlier segment, he was a simple man, and out of 200 people in his seminary class, he graduated last. Mm. He, he wasn't too bright. He struggled with Latin. He struggled with theology. He had a lot of difficulty mastering these ideas, and yet he became one of the great saints of the 19th century. And, you know, he lived in that first half of the 19th century. He became one of the great saints. He, he was renowned as a spiritual director and preacher and confessor, and so great were his powers in the confessional that they had to build a railway station in his little village in order to accommodate all the people who wanted to go to his confessional. Wow. Again, this simple man becomes a great model for Catholicism, a great magnet for Catholicism in the midst of, of, uh, of great persecution. We always come back to this line, the blood of the martyrs is seed. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And that blood really does make the soil right for people like John Vianney to arise. We'll continue with The Resilient Church with Mike Aquilina in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find 
discerning hearts. The St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology is a nonprofit research and educational institute that promotes life transforming scripture study in the Catholic tradition. Founded by Dr. Scott Hahn and with current Vice President Mike Aquilina, the Center serves clergy and laity, students and scholars with research and study tools, from books and publications to multimedia and online programming. The St. Paul Center welcomes you to their free online studies. Whether you're studying scripture for the first time, looking to take your studies to a higher level, or whether you're ready for advanced training, you've come to the right place. In addition, for each track of study, they recommend books that will enhance your study in prayer and build your library of essential works in biblical theology and spirituality. The studies are free. Just visit SalvationHistory.com to view a complete library. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to The Resilient Church with Mike Aquilina. It always stuns me how God uses those simple people to give us the most profound hope and the most profound message. And I'm thinking of John Vianney, but I'm also thinking of a young girl who could not explain the Trinity because she had never had the opportunity to be taught. And yet, once more, Our Lady brought forward by Our Lord to to help nurture a faith and struggle. And Bernadette, of course, that's who I'm speaking of, right. passes on the, the, one of the most important doctrinal messages of that age. It's a simple, the simple, this little child. And, and again, she just so faithfully conveyed the message of Our Lady, and theologians disputed it, and she stood by it. And finally, greater theologians looked at it and said, no, you know, actually, she got it right, and you got it wrong to the lesser theologians. So we find these people shaming us, and they become the models. They're the people who are canonized and held up to be imitated by all the rest of the Christians. It, it's, it's amazing that all of this came from that country that was just devastated by, by cycles of revolution and so many, time, so many ages of persecution that the faith seemed to be eradicated in some areas. They said that in the rural areas, people were, were, were just working all the time. That's what life had been reduced to. Um, they didn't go to Mass on Sunday. They just worked in the fields on Sunday, and then they'd get drunk at night. And this was the life they had been reduced to. And yet, that's the place where you would send someone who graduated last in his class of 200, right? You'd send right. them to the backwater, right, to, to the place where people were misbehaving, and uh, mm -hmm. and you didn't have too much hope in the natural order of uh, of converting those people. 
and they sent John Vianney there, and he transformed that countryside. It's an amazing thing. It's amazing the way God works because he doesn't look at the spreadsheets. <laughs> he right. knows He knows what's possible because he's all-powerful and all-knowing. And if we can just tune into his will and, uh, and, and stay with the church, we're going to prevail. Again, we're going to be with the resilient side and not the side that's just going to die in humiliation like Napoleon. Napoleon was not vindicated by subsequent generations, but the church has been. It's a lesson for us when, when we think of a, an area that is under such persecution and yet the faith, it, there's a heartbeat to it that's so strong that nothing can diminish it and it, and it will eventually take hold and prevail and see it through this horrendous time ending up and eventually becoming a light for the rest of the world. And we see that in that that period in France. But we also see in the 20th century, I'm thinking of Poland or those Eastern Bloc areas. And even in Latin America, I think there is a message for us today to maybe if not, if we don't see it in our plush surroundings and in, in all of our freedoms, if you want to find the heartbeat of faith, you know, look to those areas of persecution, and I think you'll find it in its purest form. That's right. And we should never, never uh, assume that we're safe. You talk about our, our safety and security, and we're, we're so relaxed here, knowing deep in our hearts that persecution will never come. But if you look at these countries, you know, if we look at Catholic France before the revolution, could anyone really have predicted the persecution that was to come and how ruthless and bloody and totalitarian it would be? I don't think so. And then in the 20th century, it, it, it became the same thing. You know, we look at we look at what happened in Spain, a Catholic country, mm -hmm. and how ruthless it was at the time of the Spanish Civil War. It was the same sort of persecution. It happened again. And in, in Christian Russia, uh, Orthodox Russia, we find the same thing on the eve of the communist revolution uh, in 1917. Could people have predicted that? You know, no. They were, they were living in comfort and ease sometimes, and they were living with, with the knowledge that they were the dominant cultural force, that Christianity was here, and it was here to stay. We should never presume upon that, that condition. Our faith needs to, be, needs to be disciplined, it needs to be deep, and it needs to be ready for these persecutions should they come in our lifetime, and we shouldn't be surprised if they do. Our own Catholic answer ancestors here in the United States suffered greatly, especially in that period in the, the mid-1800s. And I think as Catholics today, we're so blessed because we, you know, we're even to the point where some of us, you know, well, I, I'm a Catholic, but I accept this and that. We kind of take it for granted that we have these kind of freedoms. But yet, again, those ancestors that came had to really struggle against a fierce persecution that I don't think, we're not necessarily taught about that time in our schools, there, that you don't see that in our history books. No, but it's an important part of American history, and it's, and it's something that rears its head every now and then, so we should be aware of it. In the first half of the 19th century, there arose a movement called the Know Nothing Movement, and it was an anti-immigration movement. But at that time, most of the immigrants were coming from Catholic countries, like Ireland. They mm -hmm. were trying to, to get away from, from the famine in Ireland and the persecution in Ireland. And they were coming to the United States, and there were people bigots, really, who, who feared them and feared that they would get such numbers that they would come to persecute the, the, the Protestant majority 
in the United States and, and turn the, the reins of the government over to the papacy. It seems crazy now, uh, mm -hmm. but, but people really believed that, and uh, they caused great unrest in many cities. Um, in Philadelphia, for example, churches were blown up, they were torched, convents were sacked. The mayor of Philadelphia, who was Protestant, set himself as a watch over the Catholic churches so that he could keep them safe, and he was beaten senseless and just overrun and there were terrible things going on. And these riots spread from city to city. They were in New York, they were in Boston, they were in Louisville, Kentucky. Here in Pittsburgh, a know-nothing was elected mayor. He was a drunk street preacher, and really his ticket was, uh, was abusing Catholics. He used to go and stand outside Catholic churches on Sunday morning and shout, try to shout down the preacher inside. Mm -hmm. So this is the kind of thing that was going on. And in Pittsburgh, it's very likely that he was behind the torching of the cathedral that took place at that time. We lost our cathedral. Well, this happened all around the United States. Uh, and, uh, and in some places, I, I believe it was Louisville, Kentucky, where 20-some um, people were killed in the riots. It was a terrible time. In the army at the same time, this movement caught on, especially in the higher ranks. And Catholics were persecuted there and flogged for tending to their own devotions rather than Protestant devotions. Wow. So all of this was going on in the first half of the 19th century when our history books would often lead us to believe there was freedom of religion. Well, there wasn't. There was this anti-immigration movement that was really focused against Catholics, against Catholics obtaining any kind of freedom, any kind of power, because we were not trusted. And we really did face the danger of, of a, a persecution breaking out in the United States. And it's something of a miracle that we didn't face it. It's quite a testament to the witness of those men and women who just simply went about trying to continue to follow Christ-like life and to honor vows to help others. And I'm thinking in particular of those brave women, the religious who came to America and continued to wear their habits, which was a tremendous sign to everyone around them that they were indeed Catholic. And for many of the women, they were spat upon. They were verbally yes. abused. They were treated horribly. And yet it was, from what some of the stories I've heard, they garnered respect by communities because during the Civil War, they would go out there in those habits and they would minister to the sick. During a battle, they would go out there and uh, take care of those who were injured. And uh, so many of them saw by their witness the courage they had of taking care of the sick. You know, whether it was in a battle or it was in a, in a tenement area in a poor city, their continued witness of Christian charity began to turn the hearts that happened here in Pittsburgh, that's for sure, where, where I live. The Sisters of Mercy received a letter of commendation for their battlefield service from President Lincoln himself, and, and he had his own anti-Catholic moments, but he was pleased with what they were doing, and he saw in them an inspiring model of service. In the city of Pittsburgh, as in many other places, it was the religious women who set up hospitals and in the city of Pittsburgh, it was really the first hospital that was able to get established and get running and stay running. It was a marvel. And the Protestant newspapers really took notice at that point. And when the know-nothing threat started in Pittsburgh, many of the voices of reason in the Protestant newspapers were pointing to the fact of Mercy Hospital and the fact that these nuns were serving everyone 
regardless of religion, and that they were accomplishing what all the best efforts of the populace in general had been incapable of starting up till that point. So yes, I agree, the witness of the religious sisters was key to our establishing ourselves and showing what Christian service meant for, for Catholics. And even in that leadership of Father McGivney and establishing the Knights of Columbus to help build up strong character in men to be able to support the families of those Irish men and women who came to the country and began to foster strong communities by caring for one another and the widows and and the orphans. And it's through that, I keep thinking of Matthew 25, you know, how will I know you? Because you've fed the hungry, clothed the naked, uh, helped the poor, welcomed the stranger, visited the prisons. I mean, it's continuing to act in a Christ-like manner that ultimately spreads the gospel. That's right. In, in my book, I tell the story of, of Bishop John England, who was called the steam bishop of Charleston, because it looked like he was one of these newfangled uh, engines, <laughs> uh. you know, where he was running on a steam engine, and uh, he got so much done. And when he was assigned there to South Carolina, there were only two churches in what was the sorry excuse for a diocese down there. And he used to just walk from town to town. And what would happen is he would walk into the town in full bishop's regalia, and many people would come out just to see the spectacle. But then he would start preaching, and they would be mesmerized by his preaching because he was such a great preacher, and he converted many souls. He definitely galvanized the Catholics. He catechized them. In many cases, he gave them you know, their, their first formation in the Christian faith just by walking from town to town and wearing out his shoes. But he was able to galvanize Catholicism in the South, establish a Catholic press, and uh, use the media that were at his disposal. But also, he gave his life in service and, and um, became a model for that as well. And it was, it was uh, when he was serving people during an epidemic that he drew the disease upon himself and, uh, wow. and, and eventually died from, from the infection. But you have these great, great figures in our, in our own Catholic history, our own American history, whose stories you're not going to find in the standard history books. And I wanted to tell their stories in my book. There are great villains, you know, like the know-nothings, and we mm -hmm. should know about them too, but also the great heroes like John England, who really are models for Catholicism even today as we live in, you know, some of us live in places where Catholics are not much of a significant population, and mm -hmm. yet we look at what he was able to accomplish, and it cries out for imitation in our own day. That's all grace, isn't it, Mike? It is, it is, and grace can overcome anything, as we see again and again. God's able to work remarkable things through the humblest instruments, and, uh, and that's what we are. We need to close for today. Any final thoughts, Mike? Just that to be an American and to be Catholic, th these aren't contradictory things. They're things that should be complementary. We, we should be enculturating the faith in a particularly American way, but a way that is faithfully Catholic, entirely Catholic, and not in any way cafeteria Catholic. We need to find a way to witness the faith as powerfully as the Sisters of Mercy did in the 19th century and Bishop England did so that we can draw all our neighbors to the Catholic faith. It's not a matter of taking over the government for the Vatican. It's a matter of taking over souls for Jesus and giving them everything that Jesus wants to give them. He wants to give us the fullness of his family, the fullness of the sacraments. He wants us to know his mother as our own mother. We're all brothers and sisters. We have the same father in heaven. We have the same mother. And it's because Jesus is our brother. And uh, this is the message we want to deliver to everyone by our lives lived here in the United States of America. It's a great place to be. It's a great place to be Catholic. Oh, amen. And God bless America. <laughs>
God bless you, Mike Aquilina. Thanks for having me, Chris. This has been a great conversation. I'm looking forward to our next one. You've been listening to The Resilient Church, the glory, the shame, and the hope for tomorrow with Mike Aquilina. To hear and or to download this conversation along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts in cooperation with the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel it's worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we ask that you tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com. And join us next time for The Resilient Church, the glory, the shame, and the hope for tomorrow with Mike Aquilino.